let me just place the reading in a bit of a context here before I read the text and we get started. In Mark 13, we're getting close to the end of things. The uh, Passion Week is not far off. Jesus is spending a lot of time in the temple area, and he's been involved in many disputes with the religious leaders. But what has happened now is, for a few moments, Jesus sat by the side and watched people come in and give gifts. And immediately prior to our text for today, the very last thing we see described is the widow bringing in her two mites. And then we go from that to Mark chapter 13, verse 1. So hear now the word of the Lord. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. May the Lord bless this reading from his holy, infallible, and indeed inerrant word. So um, I'm an old guy. I learned to preach in the 1970s. And in the 1970s, we were taught certain things about sermons. Sermons are structured to have a thesis statement. And that thesis statement should be supported by three major points. And there are those from the Middle Ages that say that's because there's one for the Father, one for the Son, and one for the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure about that. But in addition to the three points, normally you would throw in a poem and a shaggy dog story. And this gives us what is known in most places as the three-point sermon. I once, I once did this all the time because it was how I was taught to preach. Well, I'm not doing that today. Instead, today I'm going to give you a sermon with three poems. One point, two takeaways, and references to several shaggy dogs and cats for that matter. So, we begin with the first poem. This was written by the late 19th century English poet William Ernest Henley. The title is Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, 
That's quite a mouthful, isn't it? Um, Henley had a rough time. He had to undergo the amputation of one foot during his teen years, and years later almost lost his other good leg. He died when he was 54 years old, and his poem has become famous for epitomizing the British trait of the stiff upper lip. And this poem has made the rounds. For example, in the House of Commons, 9 September 1941, when Great Britain is standing almost entirely alone against the Germans, Winston Churchill paraphrased the last two lines of the poem, stating, We, the British people, are still masters of our fate. We are captains of our souls. And the line, bloody but embowed, was the Daily Mirror's headline the day after the 7 July 2005 terrorist bombings of London's transportation system. But there is in this poem not only an element of defiance, but even arrogance towards God. As the last stanza borrows from the King James Version of the Bible, the reference to a straight gate. And the entire poem is off the rails. Does, does anyone here believe you're the master of your own fate? You believe you're the captain of your own soul? Would you try peddling that nonsense, that philosophy to the Moroccans who moat have lost so much in that recent earthquake? Or do you think the Hawaiians who watched the wildfires burn down their homes and businesses would claim mastery over their own fate? The Bible warns us against such arrogance, telling us that our own ways are too frequently the way of death. Isaiah 53, 6 indicts those who seek their own way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. In Proverbs 3, 5, and 7, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And there is yet another problem with the Invictus approach to life. And for that we turn to our second point. This one is by Jane Kenyon, an American poet who died early early in 1995 at the age of 48. And the title of this poem is Otherwise. And it's a fixture now in American literature. I came across it when I was doing a two-week study uh, tour up at um, Calvin College and Theological Seminary on reading for preaching. And so we read this poem. Here it goes. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day I know it will be otherwise. Otherwise intrudes when it chooses and often without warning. December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor. Without warning. November 22nd, 1963, Dallas, Texas, right outside the book depository. Without warning, September the 11th, 2001, the Twin Towers. 
otherwise without warning. Brothers and sisters, life is full of otherwise moments. And if that is so, you are not and cannot be the master of your own fate. Otherwise attacks the familiar, the comfortable, the routine, often without any warning. At other times, otherwise telegraphs its presence through a discomfort in the air, feeling that something is not right or a sense of foreboding. When I first preached this text a few years ago, we had two outside cats at that time, 13, 14, 15 years old. I'd seen those cats come running up to me every day since I came back from Iraq in 2004. But I saw something happening before my eyes. Milo, the yellow tabby, was no longer able to jump from the fence onto the porch. The little gray cat was getting slow as well. They would still come to see me, but I knew one day it would be otherwise. I preached on this text on Sunday, November the 17th, 2019, and on Tuesday the 20th, otherwise appeared as I walked into the sunroom and found that the yellow tabby had gone to sleep during the night and didn't wake up. At the trivial end of otherwise, over the years I have said goodbye to a pound full of shaggy dogs. Blackie, Whitey, Speedy, Puddin', Andy, Patches, Chubber, Jake, Zoe, and most recently, Cyrus. In most instances, old age or disease telegraphed the otherwise moment. But in a few tragic instances, the squeal of breaking tires and a sickening thump announced that otherwise had intruded. On a more profound level, I have said goodbye to my mother, father, grandmother, grandfather, to Joan's mother, Joan's father, Joan's brother, and to a host of fellow soldiers and friends, including my best friend from high school who died of a heart attack in his early 50s. I first preached this sermon in November 2018 to a congregation of 40 parishioners, eight families. I didn't know it at the time, but I found out after the service that otherwise had impacted two of the families as they had both experienced loss within the last few weeks. And during the pandemic and afterwards, we all know that otherwise has visited our families and friends as we have said goodbye to loved ones, suffered through health issues, and struggled with family brokenness. There is a regularity in the universe that bears witness to God's sovereign decree and his wise control of all things. Genesis 8 tells us, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease, but sometimes otherwise occurs. And here as our text begins, Jesus and the disciples are leaving the temple after witnessing the widow's gift. Look what the disciples say. Oh, Jesus, look at these wonderful buildings. Jesus says it looks great now, but otherwise is on its way. We are not told of the response from the disciples as they make the 25-minute walk from the temple across the Kidron Valley and up to the Mount of Olives. So you have the conversation that takes place over there in the temple area, and then there's silence on the journey. And then they get to the top where they can look down and see the city even more so. In the first century, the temple was the center of Jewish life, and its destruction in A.D. 70 marked the end of the Jewish nation. So note this. Jesus' words were devastating to his disciples. So when they arrived at the Mount of Olives, they could look down at the Golden Temple. Herod had expanded the Second Temple. 
It was improved over a period of more than 40 years. In the time of Jesus, the temple and its precincts covered about one-sixth of the geographical area there in Jerusalem. Not only that, historians tell us that some of the largest stones in the temple weighed over 500 tons. Now, I don't know if you believe in aliens or not, but I hear stuff like that. I think there have to have been aliens. How else would you have moved a 500-ton stone? As the disciples looked at that, don't you know that those words were devastating to the disciples? So it's then that James and Peter, John, Andrew, pulled Jesus aside to have a private conversation. When will these things be? Tell us what's going to happen. So after warning his disciples not to be led astray, Jesus gives them an answer. He says, look, many will come in my name, saying, I am he. They'll lead many astray. Wars and rumors of wars, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes in various places. There will be famines, but these are the beginning of the birth pains. Now, you know that most of human history has involved warfare. Rare have been those moments when someone somewhere on planet Earth was not engaged in armed conflict. And while I suspect there's been little change in the actual frequency, we live in a world of 24-7 news, so we know what's going on everywhere, all the time. And so we think about Jesus' words, and what have we seen? Well, we've seen the AIDS epidemic, we've seen the Ebola virus, we've seen the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen hurricanes, tsunamis, wildfires, earthquakes, you name it, we have seen it all on live TV, often even as it happens. Now look, even as Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple and Jerusalem, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, burned the temple in 586 because of the rebellion and wickedness of Judah, even so Jesus says, this is going to happen again. In AD 66, tensions broke out into open warfare between the Roman authorities and the Jews in Jerusalem. And after a number of political changes in Rome with the Caesar, finally, a fellow by the name of Vespasian took power, and he had a son named Titus. And he said, Titus, I have a job for you. And he sent Titus to Jerusalem, and Titus came with four legions of Roman soldiers, a legion being about 5,000 soldiers, about the size of a modern American brigade. Three he put around Jerusalem to the west, and one legion on the east to the Mount of Olives. Titus besieged the city, broke down the walls, destroyed the temple, set it on fire, and tore down one stone from another. And he ringed the city with crosses filled with crucified Jewish citizens. The destruction of Jerusalem prefigures the end and gives us a sense of what the final destruction will be. For the scripture tells us in 2 Peter 3.10, uh, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed but there is something else that happens right here in this passage. In 2 Peter 3, 9, we read these words. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And that is what we find in our text this morning. In verse 13, Jesus promises that the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
Even in the midst of this judgment, this definitive judgment, there's good news. God says, you have sinned and fallen short of my glory. God says, the soul that sins, it shall die. God says, what you have earned for the wages of sin is death. God says, I know what you deserve, but I'm going to deal with you otherwise. The Lamb of God, sinless and spotless, will take your place. The death you have earned will fall upon him. The life that is intrinsically his will become a gift to you. You see, otherwise often is an evil thing, but not necessarily. And in the person of Christ, it is truly our only hope. And so that leads us to the third point. This is written by Dorothea Day. It's a poem that follows the structure of our first point. It is laid out just like Invictus, but it turns Invictus entirely on its head. Listen to what Dorothy Day said. Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I think the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under the rule which men call chance, my head, with joy, is bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid, that despite the menace of the years, keeps and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear. Go straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Look, with Christ as our master, as our captain, we are certain he's in control of all things. And we know much of God's providential care involves regularity, cause and effect, and predictability, morning and evening, seed time and harvest, but we know this is an otherwise world in which the potential exists at any moment for joy to turn to sorrow and for the normal to be turned into chaos. I listened to the names of those that were called out for prayer. And it was obvious that some are minor issues. And it's obvious that others are much, much more serious. I believe this is an otherwise world in which the potential exists for any moment, any moment for joy to turn to sorrow and for the normal to be turned into chaos. Thousands of people in hundreds of locations will attest that this is an otherwise world, but that's not a reason for despair. And it's not a reason to shake your fist defiantly at God as though you were the master of your own fate. Listen, in an otherwise world, what do you need? You need Christ as the master of your faith, the captain of your soul. Brothers and sisters, will you agree with me that this is an otherwise world? If so, then I want to give you two takeaways. I told you two takeaways, two, all right? Two applications that are essential to living in an otherwise world. The first takeaway, listen to this, define carefully. Define carefully. Let's be clear what we mean by an otherwise world. We do not mean that this world is subject to good luck or bad luck. Luck has nothing to do with the course of this world or the events that occur in your life. 
The ancient Greeks believed in the fates. These three old women who would spin thread, and as it would come out, they would randomly snip it, terminating the lives of all of the people involved. Listen, there's no such thing as fate. There is no such thing as fortune. There is no serendipity. There are no accidents, and there are no coincidences. Instead, we're talking about something far more certain, far more powerful, God's works of providence. Shorter Catechism defines this as his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and what? All their actions. Or as stated in Westminster Confession 3.1, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. This is what we find in Scripture. Isaiah 45, verse 5 and following says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Listen to this. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now this is a tough text. But it's not teaching that God is the author of sin. Rather, it's telling us that all good and all evil that occur are part of God's infinitely wise plan to redeem this world. Indeed, Isaiah is telling us there is no such thing as random in our otherwise world. Oh, look, sometimes things appear random because we don't see or can't see all the moving parts. You all know the name John Piper, right? Years ago, he published something on his blog that is very helpful. He said this. He said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. When we define carefully, define carefully is your first takeaway. When we define carefully, we realize our otherwise world is anything but uncertain because Christ is the master of our fate. Christ is the captain of our souls. Now, look, those of you who do jigsaw puzzles know how difficult it is early on when you can only see a part of the puzzle. You've got maybe a corner piece over here and a couple tagged into it. Do you not understand the good news that God sees the end from the beginning and knows exactly where every piece is and how every piece fits? As Corey Ten Boom said, there is no panic in heaven. God has no problems, only plans. And without being too overly snotty, I would sharpen her comment just a wee bit. There is only one plan, not plans. There's no plan A, plan B, plan C, or plan D. And remember, the Lord doesn't miss the tiniest detail. Remember where our text started us off? It was right after they're sitting there in the temple and see this little old lady come in with the last bit of money that she had and she gives that that's that little giving of those worthless nearly worthless coins is where this whole conversation began so there are no small things that God doesn't see so there's your first takeaway define carefully second takeaway 
believe confidently. Define carefully and believe confidently. Our God is a God of infinite goodness, and he's at work in your life and mine to make us look like Jesus. He is a God of infinite wisdom who always knows the way forward. He is a God of infinite power who makes a way when there is no way. He is a God of infinite love who loves you more than you can ever imagine. Now, if we really believe that our good, holy, wise, all-powerful God is in control, we should all be filled with confidence and joy. We should believe confidently. Jeremiah 29, we have this wonderful promise. It's given to the people of God, exiled already in Babylon. For thus says the Lord, <coughs> when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. With their homeland gone, their temple destroyed, and Jerusalem burned to the ground, God's people needed to hear that God was not finished with them. In an otherwise world, it is essential to believe confidently that Christ is the master of our fate, the captain of our souls. And that's exactly what we see in the New Testament in numerous places, but particularly in Romans 8. Romans 8.35 asks, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There are your two takeaways. Define carefully. Believe confidently. Jesus is the master of your faith, the captain of your soul. And as we continue to live in an uncertain world, we have a constant need to define carefully and believe confidently that Jesus is the master of your fate, the captain of your soul. For we still live in an otherwise world. In closing, I want to quote from John Bloom of Desiring God. He posted this on a blog. The incredibly good news is that in Christ who loved us and gave himself for us, Ephesians 5.2, we're more than conquerors, Romans 8.37. Ours is not a stoic resolve against mindless evil. Ours is a hope-infused, courageous resolve because come what may, the end will be glorious beyond all comparison, Romans 8.18. If Christ is the master of our fates, the captain of our souls, we have nothing to fear, 1 John 4.18. We will be sustained to the end with our scroll reading guiltless, 1 Corinthians 1.8. All will work together for our good, Romans 8.28. And though we die, yet shall we live, John 11.25.
to have an Invictus soul is not heroic. It is unbounded foolishness. But to have a soul conquered by the greatest love that exists, that then by God's grace can withstand the worst that evil can throw at us and be more than conquerors and then know eternal joy? (laughs) That is a life worth living. And brothers and sisters, I would add this. In an otherwise world, it is the only life that is worth living. Let me pray for just a moment. Lord, I thank you for the word of God and that it is a light for our feet, a lamp to guide us. I pray, Lord, that we would take these words to heart, that we would take Christ into our hearts. Lord, if there's anyone here today who who has kept Christ on the outside and has tried to live that Invictus life, going it on their own. I pray that today would be the day that they open their hearts, that you open their hearts to receive Christ, and that, Lord, the rest of us would renew our faith in you. Give us that kind of confident faith, Lord, that we need in a sovereign God and a loving Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, please, and thank you. Dr. Gore, so much for bringing the Word of God. If you would turn with me to the Hymn of Consecration, number 128, verses 1 through 4, of God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Please stand. God moves in a mysterious way. 